Kermit the Frog asked, "Why were there so many songs about rainbows?" Well, truthfully, there aren't that many, but there are a lot of songs about crying. And why is that? Could it be the fact that we humans are the only creatures that cry, and that moreover we do it a lot? We even start crying before we're born, in the womb. Today, tears, without fears, a look at crying. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. If you will excuse this talk show host's sentimentality, I will share with you that I've always considered it to be one of the greatest intimacies to allow a person to cry, to allow them to cry without need for explanation, excuse, or justification. Cry if you want to. I won't tell you not to. I won't try to cheer you up. I'll just be here if you want me. It's no use in keeping a stiff upper lip. You can weep, you can sleep, you can loosen your grip. You can frown, you can drown and go down with the ship. You can cry if you want to. Don't ever apologize, venting your pain. It's something to me you don't need to explain. I don't need to know why. I don't think it's insane. You can cry if you want to. The windows are closed. The neighbors aren't home. If it's better with me than to do it alone, I'll draw the curtains and unplug the phone. You can cry if you want to. We will often tolerate rudeness, belligerence, anger, hysterical laughter, almost any kind of behavior, but don't cry. No, 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 no. People are extremely uncomfortable when others cry, and yet all of us do it, and have been doing so since before birth. You can stare at the ceiling and tear at your hair, swallow your feelings and stagger and swear. You can show things and throw things, and I wouldn't care. You can cry if you want to. I won't make fun of you. I won't tell anyone. I won't analyze what you do or you should have done. I won't advise you to go and have fun. You can cry if you want to. It has been my long desire to have our next guest on our program. His name is Dr. Randolph Cornelius. Uh, he prefers to go by Randy and has granted me permission to refer to him as such. But you need to know some significant factors about him. First of all, he received his BA from the University of Florida and then went on to get his Master's of Science and then PhD in 1981 from Massachusetts University, uh, the University of Massachusetts, I should say, at Amherst. Now, he has spent the last several years uh, trying to understand the social functions of weeping, crying, if you will, and has been developing an evolutionary theory to weeping that focuses on tears as a as a type of communicative display with intent and purpose, subconscious if not conscious, uh, basically, if you will, in a, in our 
Fabrica's Human Beings. Quite significantly, he is the editor, along with Dr. Vigerhoitz, of a book entitled Adult Crying, a Biopsychosocial Approach. Welcome to Watching America. Thank you very much. Now, I remember uh, some basic things from from biology in in school, that there's different types of tears. And the first one, which we all learn about, is basal. And that's when you have basically continuous tears throughout the day to to make sure that our eyes are moist and that they don't become too dry and, and then as a result affect our cornea. But there's two other types, and one is reflexive, which is, you know, obviously as if we've ever had a bit of dust or smoke in our eyes, and certainly the proverbial onions make us cry. But your specialty, and the reason why I am so delighted to have you on this show, is emotional crying. How, how first of all, did you get involved with wanting to study this particular aspect? Oh, that's a very interesting question. A, um, a postdoctoral fellow who we had in um, the department where I was a graduate student took me to a movie, and the movie was um, about um, the Vietnam War. And during the course of the movie, it interviewed soldiers and, you know, various people who were involved in the war. And during the film, there were interviews with two men in which they cried. And one was Daniel Ellsberg, who's quite famous in the United States for having released the Pentagon Papers. And the other was a bomber pilot, a B-52 bomber pilot. And the latter was especially interesting because he talked about going to visiting a village that he had bombed earlier and feeling a deep sense of loss and deep sense of shame. And he began crying profusely. And I thought, wow, there's my dissertation topic. But a lot of people have probably done research on this. So I started looking into the literature and discovered that actually there was not much written about it. Some things at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. Darwin had written about tears significantly. That was a source I returned to a lot. Um, and a couple other people, but that was about it. My literature review at that time was was very short. Was the, the documentary you saw Hearts and Minds? It was indeed. Well, it had a, quite a visceral effect on me too because I do remember there's that very poignant moment when the camera actually pulls out and you hear a African-American gentleman who has vigorously been very, very expressive with uh, expletives throughout and then you realize he has no legs. And that moved me to tears uh, in the documentary. So I, I, indeed, it's uh, an aptly entitled uh, documentary, Hearts and Minds. Let's talk about the Hearts and Minds connection, though, in relation to tears. Now... We hear, one reads, that our tears are entirely involuntary. Is that true or is that a misnomer? Well, you know, this is one of the, uh, what uh, Adwingerhutzen and uh, one of his colleagues, Lauren Balizma, talked about in a recent paper. One of the, the kind of riddles about tears, because tears are mostly involuntary. When, when we're confronted with something that, or put in a situation where we feel vulnerable or see other people in, who are in pain or suffering or feeling vulnerable, it's very hard to suppress our tears. Uh, but one of my students and I years ago looked at a personality variable called self-monitoring. 
High self-monitors are people who are really good at adjusting their behavior to the situation. And we found that high self-monitors could indeed inhibit their tears. But when they started crying, they couldn't stop stop them. So, you know, there's a little bit of voluntariness there, especially if you're a parent and you know when your children go through that age, what, about six through eight or nine or so. I have a six-year-old grandson who's living with us, and he's learned to manipulate us with tears. And they certainly look real, and they they make me want to comfort him and cry along with him. But they are what are called crocodile tears. When I was first starting out in this, I did some interviews with actors uh, at the University of Massachusetts. And I thought, well, actors will know something about crying because they have to cry on stage and you know, various roles and whatnot. So I happened to interview this one woman who I was told was a very good actor. And we were talking and she was talking about roles in which she cried. Uh, I said, well, how do you do that? And she said like this. And all of a sudden tears started rolling down her face. And I was just flabbergasted. And I said, well, okay, do you put yourself in a particular state of mind or something? And she said, no, I can just do it. But I think for the rest of us, it is possible to put ourselves in a particular frame of mind. If you've ever ruminated on something sad or thought about a lost relative or something like that or the plight of of immigrants coming, you know, from all over the world, um sometimes it's 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 not really that difficult to start crying. Well, let's talk about women for a moment. Uh, Cosmopolitan conducted a survey, a poll in 2010, and they found that 33% of their readership that participated in the poll cried at least once a week. Why do women have more of a proclivity to express themselves with tears or at least allow for tears versus men? Well, since I have, along with Adwingerhut's um replicated that data. Actually, our data precede those data, and other people have found very similar things. We did a, a worldwide survey of in several countries and found that the gender difference seemed to be universal. The size of it changed. So in the United States, actually, uh, the size was rather small. Men tend to cry quite a bit in the United States compared to other countries. But women seems to be around the world. And uh, by the way, I consider myself an ardent feminist and, you know, teach about this stuff. And my guess is it has to do partly with the kinds of things that women report crying about. They often cry, report crying um, in situations involving anger and frustration and interpersonal relationships. And if you think about the unfortunate nature of our culture, it's one in which women have less power than men do. One of the things that women have told me, friends have told me, and students have told me is that when they get in a situation where, let's say they're in a heterosexual relationship and a man is just being intransigent, right? Um, there's just nothing they can do but cry. 
Wingerhutz has, has postulated there may be some some underlying hormonal difference for them for this, but we really don't know that much about it. Unfortunately, it seems such an obvious thing, right? Mm. But we don't know that much. This is something I've noticed. This is kind of off the cuff, but I'm, I'm going to risk it and say it because I, I take risks from time to time on this program, you know. Uh, my observation between women is there's an immediate sorority of sympathy uh, amongst ladies, even if they don't know each other. I'll give you an example, all right, um, which men don't have, right? So if a woman calls another woman up out of the blue and says, you know, the phone rings. Hello. Hi, Janice. Yeah. This is Beverly. I met you in Food Lion in 2012. Yeah. In row four. Yeah. It's it's Gary. He broke up with me. Ah. And now there's immediate tears between the two of them and identification. A guy with his best friend that he's known since age 10 calls his friend up for similar reason to break up. Calls his friend. Hello. Hey, Greg. Yeah. It's Chuck. Yeah. It's Linda, man. She left me. Oh, man. Listen, I'm watching ESPN right now. Can I call you back? Boom. Okay. There is not that immediate correspondence between men and women. Part of it seems to be chemical and the crying facet. I mean, am I mistaken in this? Um, I don't think so. But I think there's also... You know, there's so many strands in this. I mean, you referred to our book as a biopsychosocial approach. And there's so many different strands here. So in addition to the fact that there may be some kind of biological underpinning of this, you've also got the idea that men and women are socialized into very different emotional ideologies, if you want to call it that, or emotional roles. And so... For men, crying in front of another man is to reveal his vulnerability, and that's usually taboo for men, right? Men are socialized yes. to be strong, right? And um, it's also the comforting role is not usually one that men have with other men, unless they're soldiers, and. Mm. One of the things that's actually very common right after combat, if a colleague has been injured or mortally wounded, um, you'll see soldiers crying and comforting one another. And not just one soldier, but more than one soldier. You're bringing to mind General Arnold Schwarzkopf, a four-star general who fought in and led the Allies in the first Gulf War. And I remember he taught America, and he would readily tear up. This is bearing out your, your recognition of what happens with people in the military. He would tear up at the mention of combat thinking of men that were lost. so And it was permitted. It was granted. You know, he, he could speak to uh, Barbara Walters at the time, and he had a license to do that. You're quite right. I don't see that happening in other spheres of masculinity, if you will. That's right. Well, there, there is one that's actually a very different context, and I've noticed it in what Americans call European football, but of course... Since I'm a big soccer fan, I just call it <laughs> soccer. Yeah. But you'll, you'll notice that that soccer players and soccer fans will often tear up in in groups, you know, at a loss or at a win. 
and it's a socially sanctioned kind of thing. And so I think there's a difference between men and women there. The kind of socially sanctioned situations in which men and women can cry are different. So there's all underlying biological factors. There's individual differences in how receptive people are to seeing other people feeling vulnerable. There's how sentimental we are, you know, and my my late colleague Robert Solomon wrote a, a wonderful book on sentimentality in which he tried to recover the good aspects of sentimentality. We tend to think of it as a bad emotion. You know, oh, my mm-hmm. grandmother was so sentimental. But Schwarzkopf was a very sentimental man, right? When he got Absolutely. up there in front of the world and teared up at the thought of the soldiers that he had sent into combat and lost. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and our special guest is Randolph Cornelius, who, amongst other things, has co-edited a book entitled Adult Crying, A Biopsychosocial Approach. I want to ask you about the role, if you would share with the audience, that um, encephalin plays in, in actually calming the body when we do cry. Right. There are a little bit of data, and there's a lot of speculation that when we cry, it sets in motion uh, a series of reactions in us that not at first, not while we're crying, but over a longer term, calm us down. And it's thought that, you know, the endogenous endorphins and in particular, the parasympathetic nervous system. And just to give you a little bit of overview, the peripheral nervous system, that is the part that's outside of our spinal cord and our brain, controls all of our organs. The, the sympathetic nervous system arouses us and arouses us to action. Usually it's called the fight or flight syndrome. And then the parasympathetic modulates that, calms us down. And it's actually the parasympathetic nervous system that innervates the tear ducts the tear ducts involved in emotional crying. So from that, we've worked backwards to think about the ways in which tears, when we go through a good cry, might ultimately be something that brings us back to a kind of um, emotional, physical homeostasis. Now, we talk about the term or phrase, tears of joy, Why, if we are joyous, and I've experienced this, as I'm sure virtually everyone listening has experienced this, are we moved to tears? Ah, that's one of the the mysteries that I've thought about a lot. My dissertation work, I asked people to describe the last time they cried in the presence of another person, both, and then divided up people asked half the people about sad situations and half the people about happy situations and got, you know, copious interview results and rating scales, the whole thing that we do. And and one of the most interesting things was if you step back and look at the reasons, the ultimate reasons why people describe crying out of sadness or crying out of joy, and they definitely didn't put it in these words, but both had something to do with their emotional attachment, with 
whatever was making them cry. Usually it was the person involved. But the tears of sadness seemed to involve those bonds of emotional attachment that we feel toward others. Sometimes we call it romantic love or friendship or whatever, but they're in danger of being broken or they have been broken. Tears of joy, on the other hand, some of them, not all of them, have to do with those emotional bonds being either reinstated, reconnected, or, you know, if someone shows that, yes, you're still my loved one or something like that. But then there's those spontaneous eruptions of, you know, when your team wins or something similar to this happened to me once. I was I don't know if I would call this joy, but it was a deep, deep feeling. I was in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and I saw a Vermeer up close, a real Vermeer for the first time, not a print. Mm -hmm. And I just started weeping. And it it was just the beauty of the moment. Yes. And I was just overwhelmed with tears in this public space, and people are all walking by, and they just kind of disappeared. You've anticipated where I was going to go next with with the issue that intrigues me. A separation between the auditory and the visual response uh, in relation to tears and that which produces tears. For instance, there are pieces of music of people who love classical or jazz or, or whatever, who can be so moved on upon listening to the music. I know this has happened to me where I am reduced. Isn't that interesting? We say reduced to tears. Yeah. That's that very wonderful? revealing. I just realized that. Reduced to tears. Mm-hmm. Why not increased to tears? Interesting. Anyway, but I have, going with the common vernacular, I have been reduced to tears at listening to various passages of music. But I've also had the experience that you had in Amsterdam where you look at a work of art and tears come. Has there been any studies done between the auditory and the visual in relation to that which produces tears? Not that I know of, believe it or not. I I know that there are studies of music in which particular forms of, you know, musical changes... Minor chords, a minor in general <laughs> yeah. is is the, the chord that makes people uh, tear up. Um, and I really don't think anyone knows why. We know there is such a thing as a dry cough. We use that that expression. Is there such a thing as a dry cry? That's a great question. And there is, because I uh, have done some work on asking people about situations in which they've tried to but couldn't cry. Mm. And Wingerhutz and I included this in one questionnaire that we did, and there there are some interesting things about this. There's a gender difference there. Men are more likely to say they inhibited their tears, but they still feel like tearing. I'll tell you a strange anecdote. I had a, a wounded soldier in one of my samples in which I was asking about crying, and he had been 
hit by a, a piece of shrapnel in his eye, one of his eyes, and he'd lost his eye and he had a flap of skin over it. He told me the story that involved him crying. It was a very deep and involving story, very meaningful to him. And he said, you know, in the vernacular of soldiers from the 60s, he said, you know, man, what was so weird is that I felt myself crying out of my eye that I don't have. Mm. So like a, phant- so, a phantom cry. Yeah, a phantom crying. So crying is something that appears on the face, but it also happens in the brain. You know, those times when we're moved to tears or reduced to tears by a work of art or something like that, or something beautiful that someone did for us. Something in the brain. What causes, Doctor, the the swallowing response? You know, we feel choked up. We use that term choked up. It's as though there is a presence in the throat and we are trying to either, um, I use this technically retard to mean impede the expression of it, or we give in and, and let it go. But what is that sensation in the throat area, just on the brink of tears? Yeah. My guess is it has something to do with the variety of neural connections that are involved and muscle connections that are involved in crying. Because, you know, one of the things that happens when we start tearing up, um, and especially crying profusely, is our nose swells up. Mm. And that's because tears drain into the nasal passages. And then when the tear ducts there get filled up, tears spill down our face. But the the choked up part, I, I think, is very interesting, in part because there has been this kind of theme running through accounts of people's crimes. And one of the places you can trace it back to is a book by a man named Helmut Plesner, who was a Dutch philosopher. And he wrote about crying as being something that is manifested in situations where we can do nothing else. Somehow that choked up response might have something to do with that. We, we're, our speech is reduced. And all we can do is let these tears flow. I want to conclude, uh, or at least get close to concluding, with the following question, and it comes from my experience as a communications professor. The bread and butter course for most communication programs is public speaking. And there's various types of speeches as informative and persuasive. I always have my students do what I call uh, basically a, a self-revelation uh, speech, which is testimonial. And they will begin to talk about things that they think they're never going to burst into tears about. I'm talking about male and female students. And then there's something about the verbal expression of something from their lives, which immediately, once they've articulated it, once they've said it out loud, they burst into tears. Yes. What's what's happening there? Well, I would go back to the idea that tears evolved to display our vulnerability to others, and that allows others to then respond to us in a comforting way. And I've seen students do this in class. I've done it in class, too, as a professor when I've revealed something personal about myself and a tear rolls down my cheek or I've shown a film and at the end of the film I'm still wiping my eyes, you know, 
to ask them to talk about something that is personally relevant is to ask them to reveal their vulnerability, I think. It's a, that's a lovely exercise. I come from the north of England. This is a very common expression. Oh, come on, love, have a good cry. And yeah. um, we were always encouraged in my household, if someone was upset, to have a good cry. Is there any such thing as a bad cry? Um, yes. I think there, there are, are several different types of bad cries. One is a, is a cry in the presence of the wrong person. Yes. Um, if you're if you're crying in front of a a lethal boss, let's say, yes, you know, one of these completely unsympathetic persons, the boss happens to be a male, you happen to be a woman. That's a very difficult situation. Although yes. if you saw Devil Wears Prada, you know, you know that it can be a woman who is the boss as well. And that's where there's an interesting spin on that expression, reducing someone to tears. I mean, you're, you're literally reducing someone's status when you make them cry. I, um, I keep saying about, you know, one last question. This truly will have to be the, probably the last question. I have observed that men in particular have a hard time with women when they cry. And I think that, and there's no scientific research to validate what I'm about to propose, but my inclination is that because men are fixers, they want to fix the woman who's crying, and they don't know necessarily how to do it. My observation is that women don't want necessarily to have the male fix the situation, but to be with them and to understand and be concerned as to why they are crying. Have I missed the boat on that, or am I accurate? No, I think you're absolutely accurate. I mean, one of the things that women want is empathy. They don't want sympathy. They want empathy. They want the man to to feel something of what they're feeling. And they don't want the man to say, there, there, you'll get over it, you know, or something of that sort. Um, and, you know, again, thinking about social roles, men aren't really socialized into that kind of role unless they're socialized as a as a you know practitioner or specialist and then as a psychotherapist you're you're trained not to cry right you you're trained mm -hmm. to to empathize um but to allow the the person to cry and i think that's actually something that women want when I was doing experiments in which I was showing people sad films and trying to get them to cry, we had to really stage manage the situation. And, and one of the most powerful props was a box of tissues. And It's an open um, invitation. Yes. That's saying, you have permission to cry. And therapists told, tell me, that they do that too on the table you know or somewhere near where the client can see it there's a box of tissues so you have the license i want to go back to what you said you said that one of the circumstances in which it is bad to cry is with an indifferent perhaps even callous boss what would be some other examples of a bad cry well i think crying in public in front of strangers is is something that would would make someone feel so vulnerable. What if you were that, the Speaker of the House? You know, ah, well, there you might get a different kind of reaction. Or think about, um, 
I don't think very highly of him, but Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, when he was dealing with the immediate aftermath of the attacks of 9-11, and he teared up, and he was seen as, as that made him a hero to some extent. We have news anchors that do it. I mean, I don't want to say which network because people who like CBS might get upset, but... <laughs> We have uh, news anchors that just about every single newscast finds some reason to tear up. Is that right? Yeah. That's one. I find that wonderful. Really? You know, okay. Because I, 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 I have to be honest. I'm going to go on record here. I, I'm a little suspicious of it when it's, you know, every every uh, show when you have the wrap-up story of the right. kid who, who gathers, you know, shoes to give to people in Guatemala or something, mm-hmm. and then you cut back to the newscaster and he's got tears that he's wiping away. I'm sorry, call me cynical. And I'm not, I'm very receptive to people crying, but it's a, a different take. But we'll, we'll move on. I have to ask you this one last question because you're such a great guest. Excluding mania, where people can vacillate, all right, what is the issue when we find ourselves, all of his experiences, vacillating at times between, in the same breath, tears, laughter, tears, laughter, tears, laughter? What's happening then? I think that's a fascinating topic, and and again, it's one that nobody's really looked at in detail, except a lot of people have speculated on it. I had a student who started to develop a work on this, and she found that, that the majority of the people that, who she surveyed said they had, in fact, done just that, been in a situation where they went from laughing and cr- to crying and vice versa. I think one of the things that's involved there is, is is simply the same parts of the nervous system. And our respiration is actually very similar when we're laughing and when we're sobbing. You know, we have that very strong uh, respiration response and response of the do- abdominal muscles. People laugh through their tears sometimes. Yes. I mean, this is a, it's a wonderful question because... That's another one of the mysteries of tears. Dr. Randolph Cornelius has been our guest on Watching America, and we have all been enriched as a result. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for the information that you've shared with us. And uh, what will be your next part of research or your next book? Do you know? I'm actually working on a project in which I'm trying to understand how early humans develop the individual differences that we see that are so characteristic of human beings. You know, each of us is unique. There'll never be another person like you, ever, and there never was. And so how did our species evolve into that? And you can see glimpses of that in early tool makers. You can identify a particular tool maker or in the Lascaux Caves or I've been in the Fontagam Cave in France. You you can actually identify the individual artists. So this is about 35,000 years ago. I mean, that, for me, is is just a fascinating topic. And its relationship to tears is, you know, that should be about around the time when this emotional tearing response evolved. So build me that time machine, please. Okay, we'll work at it. Dr. Randolph Cornelius, I wish you good tears, good cries at appropriate moments, and then a heck of a lot more laughter and peace and contentment. Thank you so very Thank much, sir. Thank you very much. The same to you. This has been a delight. Likewise. Thank you. 
This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. Welcome back to Watching America. We continue our investigation to crying. Why do we do it? How do we do it? And what are the ramifications of continually doing it? My new guest is Dr. Vigen Hortz. He is the professor of clinical psychology at Tilburg University, and he is the co-editor of Adult Crying, a bio-psychosocial approach. I must tell you, Doctor, the first time I heard your voice was on an international flight from the United States to London, and there was a podcast that was featured during the flight, and I was totally enraptured with the things that you had to say regarding tears and crying, and we had planned on doing the show anyway, and when I heard your voice, I thought, we've got to get this man on Watching America. So it is a great privilege and a joy to have you here. I want to begin by asking you about something that just happened earlier on the way into the studio today. I was playing a CD in my car, and it happened to be... Johann Sebastian Bach's Yisu Joy to Men's Desiring. And I found myself welling up with tears. Why? I, I think because you have a, a, a great empathy. So you are aware of uh, the background of the music and the associations in a wider sense of that music that can make you, because of your empathic uh, uh, skills, can make you cry or, well, or your tears well up. Dr. Vigahoots, you have also written another work, which is Why Only Humans Cry, Unraveling the Mystery of Tears, which is published by Oxford University Press. Is there such a thing as being addicted to crying? What I mean by that, there are some persons who will intentionally and deliberately try to induce tears, not just for manipulation, but they generally enjoy crying. Is there a type of pathology in relation to crying? There is indeed, uh, in some cases, a kind of pathology in relation to crying, but I don't think that addiction is, is the right term here. It's well known in neurology that patients, for example, with stroke or other brain damage, that they show what has been called a kind of pathological crying or inhibited emotional crying. So that's a kind of state in which they seem to have very limited control over their crying. And then in addition, you have also, uh, of, of course, uh, people who suffer uh, states like homesickness or grief. And when you are rejected uh, by a lover or so, these are the very strong elicitors of tears. Well, the reason I ask is there are whole entire categories on YouTube of classifications of songs, for instance, songs to make you cry. And evidently, there is a, an audience out there that like to induce sadness to the point of tears. They, they find it to some degree cathartic. It's, it's like the souls that like a rainy day and, and uh, lots of cups of tea to commiserate <laughs> about sad thoughts. I mean, is that not true? Yeah, we have our doubts about the uh, notion that tears make you feel better. We have uh, conducted a study in which we tried to predict in which case people reported relief and in which case they did not report relief. In that study, we learned that just 50% of the cases people report feeling better after having cried. And in 40% of the cases, they uh, reported uh, no difference in mood and 10% they felt worse, reportedly. So, and then our analysis learned us that what were important predictors is first, in order to benefit from crying, you already have to be in a good uh, mental shape. For example, people who are depressed, they tend to cry more, but they hardly, if ever, report benefits of crying. So it's only for 
those who are already in a good mental shape. What's further important is the trigger, the specific trigger of the tears. We made a distinction between what we call controllable events, like, for example, a conflict situation, and uh, uncontrollable situations, for example, the passing away of a significant other. And then we found that in the case of uh, uncontrollable events, people report less mood improvement than in the case of controllable events. And third, what was extremely important, that was simply how others react to your tears. If they react with understanding and with providing comfort and so on, then you feel better. But if they uh, are making jokes of you or become mad at you and you feel ashamed, then it's very exceptional that, and very unlikely that you will feel uh, any relief. He has died relatively recently, but the former president, George Herbert Walker Bush, in the latter part of his life, would cry readily, quite easily. I've known other people who, as they've gotten older, have developed a propensity to cry more. To what do you attribute that to? Yes, that's, that's, that's a common finding that, uh, especially for men, if we grow older, that we tend to cry more often. And I think the most easy and logical way to explain that is that our testosterone levels also decrease. And uh, there is evidence that testosterone has an inhibiting influence on, uh, on crying. In relation to women, do their monthly cycles, I mean, we're all aware that women go through various moods, but uh, is there a particularly heightened time for women to cry during their monthly cycle? Most uh, women do think that that's the case, but if you uh, (laughs) investigate that with diaries, then you don't find that. You can find a kind of change and fluctuation in mood, but not in crying. But nevertheless, women tend to report that they cry more often in the early phase uh, near the onset of the menstrual cycle. Now, I've been with people who have teared up and started to cry, and I've heard them on occasion. This is rare, but I have heard people say, I don't know why I'm crying. Is it in the subconscious that that people are, are triggered to cry and are not necessarily awakened to the reason why it's occurring? That could be the case. I also had such an experience that I was watching a a movie, an an American movie. Uh, It it was about a teenager who uh, had cancer and she she was hospitalized. Her father was not allowed uh, of his boss uh, to visit her and she felt that that was not fair. And so she said, I want to see the president and uh, discuss this with him. And then there is a scene that Clinton, because it it was uh, based on reality and Clinton played himself in that movie that he received that child and he said from uh, something like well here you are you are welcome in this uh, oval office and here I uh, receive all important people from all over the world but the most important that's you and at that moment I started to cry and it was completely unexpected I had never anticipated that such a scene would make me cry So apparently this was a very strong signal of my body that this scene, what was going on in that particular movie, that made big impression on me and that I felt that very important. Dr. Vingerhoots, I hope you'll excuse my poor attempt at armchair analysis because it will be just that. But do you suppose there's any possibility that you identified with the idea of recognition? Because that evidently from the story you've just described, that's what occurs. This young person gets recognition by one of the most powerful 
powerful people in the entire world. Did you identify with that on some level? I don't think so. I think that it it was that situation. I felt the injustice that her father was not allowed to visit her and and that Clinton was willing to welcome her. I I think that that made much impression. And that's what we see more generally. We label such situation as as sentimentality and we associate that with lower cultural products and so on and so on. But generally, you could say that the kind of situation that triggered tears these positive situations is nearly always about things like uh, altruism, self-sacrifice, the good overcomes the bad, eternal love, comradeship, and so on. So really very important uh, societal issues. So whereas we tend to refer to those situations as, well, sentimental, we have to admit, I think, that this is all about morality. In the course of your studies, what presumptions did you possibly have when you came into studying this topic, which you've studied for decades now, and what findings most surprised you? Well, I started with the idea that that I I want to evaluate whether it was true that crying brings relief. And so, as I already explained, that's not always the case, and that depends especially on how others react to your crying. That also made us aware that so the reactions of others are very important. So our focus is now especially on how is a crier perceived by others, and what effect has it on the behavioral tendencies of others. And there we also find some interesting and surprising results. Generally, we tend to say that crying persons are weak, not competent, emotionally uh, not stable. But what we uh, found to our surprise very consistently is that people who cry are especially also seen as honest, as reliable, as warm and sincere. So there's again that moral dimension that uh, seems to be associated with crying. So that's a very interesting and surprising result. So we are now continuing uh, uh, our research in that direction. Dr. Vingerhoots, we uh, encounter sometimes where one person will start to laugh hysterically. And it has a chain link effect of people, at least in the vicinity, other people in the room start to laugh, etc. And it carries on and it becomes almost contagious, the laughter. Yeah. Can the same thing happen with crying? And the reason I ask this is because in, in earlier cultures and even sometimes in various cultures today, you have what's known as professional mourners, people who come yeah. to mourn. What has your research addressed, if, if anything, in that regard? No, I, I myself, I have not addressed that topic in my uh, research, but it's an interesting phenomenon. And it's, it, indeed, it seems that these people also help to make others cry, that they are a kind of examples to others how they should behave appropriately in that situation. And that certainly helps them. I'm interested in any demographics that have come either from your research or the research of others. Are there particular cultures that cry more? Now, um, I hope listeners will forgive me for this stereotypical assumption, but we sometimes associate Italian people, for instance, for being highly emotive. Um, Do Italians cry more than the French or the French cry more than Canadians? Uh, Is is there any indication that you have regarding this? Yeah, that's really an interesting question because there has been indeed research that that has yielded evidence that in general, more generally speaking, people 
people living in southern areas uh, that they are more emotionally expressive. But in our crying studies, we just find the opposite. To our surprise, so most crying we found not in Italy and, and in Spain and that kind of countries, but in Scandinavia. So it, it was... Wow. We, we found a rather strong a negative association between the mean annual temperature and the amount of crying. So the colder the country, the more people cry. I never would have anticipated that. Yeah. Uh, were you surprised we by that finding? <laughs> yeah, I was very surprised <laughs> by that finding. Yeah. And what was a, an, another issue in your research that, that surprised you, that you, you held to one belief and then you said, no, this is totally wrong? What I learned and what surprised me was that issue of that, uh, morality, but what also was surprising to me is that when I discussed these findings, that people became in, colleagues from, for example, forensic psychology became interested in the methods that we use, because they felt that they could maybe also apply our uh, study methods, because they felt that maybe that's a kind of an objective way to evaluate empathic skills, and that's what they strongly need, especially in forensic psychology to evaluate interventions with uh, psychopaths and so on. And so that, that's also an interesting uh, area, I think, that, that I hope in the near future to uh, pursue. You have addressed the issue of what's called acoustical crying, which is primarily with infants and babies. Yeah. And you have indicated that it's very important that we eventually move away from this acoustical crying. My question is, are there persons on this planet who have arrested development who have never sufficiently walked away or figuratively moved on from acoustical crying and have ceased to be able to articulate what they want and they are just, frankly, what people commonly call in normal parlance crybabies? <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is without doubt a group of people, a minority, who uh, continues in, in that kind of crying. And, yeah, I don't know what to say about it. It's part of the population who is uh, just like there are minorities with uh, red eyes and, uh, and so on and so on. Is there a significant difference between genders and sexes in as far as the way we cry? Yeah, it seems that at least in the Western cultures that uh, adult uh, men and adult women uh, differ significantly in the amount of crying. Females crying about two to four times uh, as many times as frequently as uh, men do. We also have tried to analyze why that is the case and uh, we think that there are at least uh, four important factors that play a role. First is what is often overlooked, that women and men also differ in the kind of situations that they are exposed to, but also that they uh, seek because they have different professions, but, but also in their leisure times. The kind of movies that men and uh, women watch might be different. The kind of magazines that men and women read might be different and so on and so on and the professions there are still many more uh, women working in healthcare than men and so it's more likely that they are exposed to emotional situations and what's further important is of course that men and women might also have a different uh, threshold it might be that the threshold to cry for women 
is a bit lower than for men, which might be related to, for example, the hormone testosterone, the male's hormone testosterone. And what further plays a role is, of course, the social pressure, the influence of parents. But I think that maybe even more important is the influence of peers. So if a child of 12 years, if he starts crying, he may be laughed at and, and maybe bullied by his uh, friends and classmates. And that seems less likely to be the case uh, uh, for for uh, girls. So altogether, the, these are three important factors that determine why uh, women cry more often than men. Well, before we leave, Dr. Vingerhoots, I have to ask you, do you have any advice for any of us the next time we cry? Don't be afraid of it. Just let yourself go. I'm aware that, especially when you are in in the presence of strangers, that you may feel very uncomfortable. But nevertheless, I would say consider it as a very normal and important reaction that should not be uh, that should not be inhibited. Dr. Vingerhoots, thank you so very much for spending your valuable time with us. We're extremely grateful, and we wish you a good, lovely evening. Thank you very much. Bye. Blessings. Bye bye. Watching America is made possible by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Todd Washburn, our producer extraordinaire, Paul Bebo, senior producer and recording genius, editor, Gina Gamboni, executive producer, Chuck Dowd, chief of content, Heather Mazzoni, and CEO, Bert Schmidt. I am Watching America's creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.